You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Um, good morning. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all to the Carnegie Endowment this morning, and a particular pleasure for me to welcome Professor William Walker sitting to my right. Um, William is a professor of international relations at the University of St. Andrews uh, and uh, has, has, has had throughout his career a range of achievements, um, uh, Leverhulme Awards, uh, 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 the Nobel Institute Research Fellowship Award. Um, but I think, I think that list uh, doesn't do justice to a career and a body of work and writing that is uh, extraordinary in its scope and range. Uh, I was uh, catching up on my Twitter feed this morning, and I noticed that um, uh, uh, Doug Shaw from GWU was tweeting and pointed out that William must be one of the very few professors of international relations to have a degree in engineering. Um, and I think that background characterizes this work that ranges from uh, the incredibly robustly technical uh, such as the work that William did with uh, David Albright and uh, Franz Berghut in working out uh, the first serious attempt to try and work out how much uh, Heinrich's uranium and plutonium had been produced in the world, uh, all the way through to some of his more theoretical work uh, on the nuclear order. Uh, there's a particularly memorable article uh, William wrote in International Affairs on the, enlightenment, the nuclear enlightenment and counter-enlightenment. Uh, and as many of you may know, he's just published a book uh, the, uh, a Perpetual Menace, uh, which is his reflections on uh, the nuclear order. Uh, and uh, as, as, as my boss, who I don't see here at the moment, wrote on the back cover, it's an incredibly wise book that uh, discusses a policy of uh, restraint. Uh, William is going to be talking about something that I think is right in the middle of those two extremes of the kind of very technical and the theoretical this morning. Um, we're all very used to, those of us who work in D.C., discussing uh, U.S. domestic politics. Uh, but it turns out other countries have domestic politics too, uh, including the U.K., which, as you can probably tell from my accent, uh, I'm from. Uh, I'm from south of the border uh, in England. William's from north of the border in Scotland. Uh, and there is, at the moment, a genuine debate about the possibility of Scottish independence. Um, the implications of Scottish independence on British nuclear weapons uh, is something that has only occurred, I think, to a very small number of people. But if you mention that to anybody in the UK government, they go very, very quiet uh, and uh, don't talk to you for the rest of the, uh, um, uh, uh, for the, rest of the time you're together. Uh, William and another Scot, Malcolm Chalmers, explored this in um, uh, a book that's 10 years old now, Uncharted Waters. Uh, this was a book that, as William himself would acknowledge, made almost no impact at the time, but turns out to be incredibly prescient uh, and is one of those uh, works that a decade after it's produced, everybody starts turning to it because it was in some sense uh, probably about a decade too far ahead of its time. Um, so uh, I, would, I would firmly recommend this for anybody who is interested uh, in, 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 in plowing into more of the details. Uh, that, I think, is enough from me. Uh, and over to you, William. Well, <clears throat> thanks very much, James, for those very kind uh, comments. And um, it's always a pleasure to be back here. I find my I mean, this uh, uh, centre here is is always one of the my kind of calling places and where I come to to learn and to talk and to discuss. I should declare um, in advance my neutrality on this issue. First of all, I'm going to take no position on whether Scotland being independent is a good or a bad thing. 
And I'm going to take no position on whether the UK having nuclear weapons is a good or a bad thing. So I think my task here is simply to try to give you perhaps a better understanding of the background to the current debate that's taking place in the UK and uh, to try to actually explain to you why it's rather complicated and has quite a lot of implications, international implications as well as implications for the UK. Um, the, in fact, what we're facing here is the possible breakup of a second nuclear weapon state, the first being the Soviet Union. But the issues are actually very different. And obviously there's a difference in scale. The UK is a much smaller nuclear weapon state with, with fewer capabilities. Um, and in this case, it's a question of whether the main successor state to the United Kingdom, which is coming to be referred to as the rest of the United Kingdom, our UK, which is England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, if it did turn out there was independence, whether that uh, successor state could sustain its nuclear force and remain a nuclear weapon state. Um, and what the implications of that are. So in this context, there's no anxiety, necessary anxiety about proliferation or about um, loose nukes, materials, and all the rest of it. Um, there's no anxiety about the absence of security over the weapons. It's really to do with the fate of the UK as a nuclear weapon state. And more widely, I have to say, in London, an anxiety is that this is linked to the fate of the UK as a member of the UN Security Council and as a great power and the fate of its relations with Washington and other places. So um, in a nutshell, uh, the, a referendum is being called in Scotland, probably being held in October 2014, still quite a long way away. Um, and in that referendum, which we held only within Scotland, it is possible, only possible, that there will be a yes vote for independence. Um, the entire British nuclear force is operated out of Scotland. The Scottish government is committed to having Trident removed, the Trident submarines removed from Scotland, and there's nowhere else in the UK for these things to go. So if the Scottish government did win the ref referendum and did press ahead with closing down the bases in Scotland, it would be amount actually to the disarmament of the UK, because there's nowhere else for these things to go. And this is what I want to discuss with you. And I thought in doing that, I would give you two potted histories before I came to the actual issues uh, around the referendum. The first potted history is, forgive me, I think, I, I imagine actually quite a few of you in this room aren't really very familiar with the, the history of Scotland and, and the United Kingdom. But it's, again, a very potted history. But I think it is important. And then I potted history of the UK nuclear force, and then I get to come on to Scotland and the, and, and, and the referendum. Scot potted history. First thing, Scotland was a self-governing kingdom for 600 years, um, from, the, from the 11th century up to the 17th century. So it, has, it had a history of being an independent entity um, within Europe. Um, within that long period, uh, there was a, a long history of strife with England. And you may know there were endless battles, which sometimes the English won, occasionally the Scottish won. 
But the English never succeeded in pacifying Scotland, much as the Romans didn't succeed in earlier times too, partly to do with geography. The union between Scotland and England and Wales uh, happened in two stages. First of all, the union of the crowns in 1603, because the line ran out in, in England and the nearest cousin of the for of Elizabeth I happened to be James I, VI of Scotland, who became J James I of, of um, England and Scotland, 1603. Then you had a long period of the Civil War, which engulfed both Scotland and England and Ireland, and was very much connected with religious strife, but also had a, a kind of nationalist side of it too. And then in 1707, Driven partly by a, an economic crisis in Scotland, you had the Union of the Parliaments. So the Union of the Crowns in 1603, Union of the Parliaments in 1707, and the Scottish Parliament was closed down. Um, at the same time, you had the Union happening, but the Scottish remained, retained a certain separate identity, partly because it retained its own legal system, it retained its own education system, and its churches were distinct. And to some extent, the culture, literary, and others remained distinct. 1745, you had the Battle of Culloden, which was really the end of the strife with England, followed by this century and a half of tremendous cultural um, dynamism in Scotland, the Scottish Enlightenment, um, science, literature, philosophy, political theory, and all the rest of it. Um, and a lot of industrial innovation and expansion, Glasgow becoming the centre of the world's shipbuilding industry and becoming a very dynamic place and a very important place in the, in the building and expansion of the British Empire, actually, in Scots, but everywhere in the British Empire, I can tell you. Late 19th century, you had a debate about home rule developing, really driven by the debate about Ireland. Um, didn't really have much effect in Scotland, but nevertheless, it registered a bit. Um, then you had the World Wars, First World War, Second World War, which tend to be um, binding again of the Union because of British forces and all the threats to security and so on. But then after the Second World War, you had the end of empire, withdrawal from empire, deindustrialization in Scotland as in parts of northern England, and increasingly a kind of separate identity developing in Scotland. Then you had the election of Mrs. Thatcher in 1979, and Mrs. Thatcher was almost universally loathed in Scotland. I know she has some embarrassment over here, but uh, she, she provoked a very strong reaction. Mrs. Thatcher, to them, symbolized, I mean, this great emphasis on individualism, whether Scotland's got a rather collectivist culture. Also, she was seen as a rather little Englander and Southern English nationalist. Anyway, she's sometimes referred to as the midwife of Scottish devolution and even possibly Scottish independence down the line. Also, what happened then after that was this Conservative Party, the main largest party in England, lost its footing in Scotland. And today, out of 59 members of Parliament returned to the Parliament in Westminster, only one is a Conservative member. You have at the moment in the UK a Conservative Liberal Coalition, only one member of Parliament um, one, one of those uh, Conservative members of Parliament out of a great many comes from Scotland and that's from actually the very southern parts of Scotland. The Conservative Party is more, more or less absent from the rest of Scotland. Um, 1997, um, the Labour Party promised devolution to Scotland and a referendum to restore the Scottish Parliament and with extended but still limited powers. 
1998, the Scotland Act was passed after the referendum was successful. And the way in which it was constructed was that issues were reserved to London by the Act. So it specified those issues in which London would retain authority over policy. And the primary ones among those were defense and foreign policy and fiscal and macroeconomic policy, but a whole raft of other things too. Things that weren't mentioned in the Scotland Act were devolved to Scotland, like policing, like education, like some aspects to the health service, and so on and so forth. However, the Westminster Parliament retained supremacy. So the Scotland Parliament, to some extent, had to seek authority from the, from the Westminster Parliament. Also, the, in the Scotland Act, the Scotland was given an, elec an electoral system, which was proportional representation, which has always been resisted at the UK level. And the, it was designed to make it impossible for the Scottish National Party to dominate the Parliament. And the irony today is, in fact, the Scottish National Party does dominate the Parliament, and instead you have a coalition in the Westminster Parliament uh, where the first part of the post system is supposed to always give one party uh, uh, dominance. Anyway, 2007, this is eight years after the Parliament opened, election in Scotland, Members of Scot there are 129 members of the Scottish Parliament elected every four years. Um, the SNP became uh, the largest party, but, had, but didn't form a coalition, but formed a minority government, which survived for four years and demonstrated, in fact, the whole emphasis was on demonstrating that it was competent and could run a government, and it was regarded, actually, as a rather successful exercise. And then to huge surprise in May 2011, in the next election, the SNP actually won the whole majority of seats in the Scottish Parliament. And I've got here the proportions of the votes. It's 45.4% of the votes were for the SNP, the Scottish National Party, 31.7% Labour, 13.9% Conservative, 7.9% Liberal Democrat, and a few others. So it really it, it had an astonishing rise to dominance within Scotland over a very, very short period. Um, and then it, it um, called a referendum. Uh, and, and without exactly agreeing on the time, it was called for um, 2014. It's still controversial, this. Um, one thing is that the Scottish Parliament itself doesn't have legal authority to call and run a referendum on independence. That's actually within the Scotland Act that is retained by the Westminster Parliament, but the, it's been more or less accepted now that Westminster can't actually dictate to Scotland on this. Um, and there's questions about what exactly the language of the referendum will be and so on and so forth. So, so quite a lot of argument. Also, by the way, it's been stated by actually a succession of governments and prime ministers that if the referendum does say yes, um, then the, the government in London will accept the outcome of the democratic vote in Scotland. So they will accept it. Um, okay, a potted history of the nuclear force in, in the UK. Um, as you know, the UK was in it from the beginning, uh, was a co-partner of the United States and the Manhattan Project. After some period of uh, being thrown out of uh, the cooperation with the US, and then they came together in the... 1958, the US-UK Mutual Defense Agreement, the Polaris Agreement from 1962, which re-established the close ties between the American and the British nuclear weapon programs. 
And at, along with intelligence sharing, you might say that the, 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 this collaboration has been regarded, certainly from London, as a central part of the special relationship between the UK and the US. Uh, a pattern was established um, in terms of the manufacture and operation of nuclear forces in the UK. And I have a, a map here, Scotland to the north, of course, and um, the situation that warheads, submarines, and reactors were manufactured in England. So down here is Aldermaston Burfield, where the warheads are designed and manufactured. Um, it doesn't actually show here, but there's a place called Barrow and Furnace where the submarines are manufactured. Uh, the submarine reactors are manufactured in Derby by Rolls-Royce. And uh, there's also a submarine testing facility up at Dune Ray here, a reactor testing facility. And the whole system is deployed out of two bases here in the west of Scotland, Coolport and Faz Lane. And if I can just go on here. Uh, this is an expanded version of the, you can see the two bases, Faz Lane, which is where the submarines are berthed, and Coolport is where the missiles and warheads are stored and loaded onto the submarines. And you can see here, this is Glasgow, is just over here. It's quite actually a, a, a heavily populated area, but although quite mountainous in between. And you have these sea locks, going, and the submarines come from Faz Lane, go around here, load their missiles, and then take off down through the Clyde, um, trying to evade yachts and pleasure steamers and all the rest of it, and keeping below the surface every now and then, getting tangled in fishermen's nets and things like that, and running aground occasionally too. So anyway, um, uh, and by the way, by the end of the late 1990s, all other systems in the UK have been closed down, bombers, all other kinds of nuclear weapons. So the situation is the entire British nuclear force is deployed out of Scotland. And there are no nuclear weapons deployed out of England at all, or Wales, or Northern Ireland. 2006, um, you had the decision taken in Britain, or the great debate, about whether to replace the current Trident weapon system, whether to replace it with the same kind of system, whether to try and uh, replace it with another system, whether in fact to give it up altogether. And uh, the decision was taken in January 2007, endorsed by the Westminster Parliament, that it would be replaced with like by like exactly the same system, again with the same cooperation with the United States, um, negotiated between President Bush and, and, um, and Tony Blair, by the way, the agreement was restored. There would be four boats manufactured, one permanently always at sea, and I think the idea was 196 warheads. I think it was declared, was that right, 196? James, there about, anyway, something like that. And the basic idea was that for the next 20 years or so, the current system would operate, and then gradually the new boats would come in and replace the old ones. And so you were talking about 2020s, 2030s, you get introduction of the new ones, and this would then um, sustain the British deterrent into the middle part of the 21st century. Now, I can note politically that the decision by the UK government and the Westminster Parliament, at no time was the possibility of the UK's breakup considered in the debate. At no time. And um, I, I have to say, I feel a certain pride in an article I wrote in the Financial Times, which pointed out, and the, the whole argument about replacing Trident was based upon the precautionary principle, which said, um, you know, 
we don't need, actually need these, this deterrent at the moment, but the, it's a dangerous world we live in, we might need it in the future, in which case, as an insurance, we should keep it, because we can't actually rebuild it if we do give it up. And I pointed out in the article, what about the precautionary principle of the breakup of the United Kingdom within the next 50 years? But this argument had, it had cut no ice in, in London, because it simply didn't seem to be at that state, even just five years ago, unimaginable that the UK might break up. And I have to say today, it's come as almost a shock down in London. This whole possibility that the UK might break up has come as a bit of a shock to the policy communities in London. And they're trying to really work their heads around it as to what it might imply, and also how they, how they counter it, which is not at all easy. Um, the, so the, Scottish, the strong Scottish opposition to this uh, was, was not heeded. And in fact, no minister, uh, the prime minister, no one came to Scotland from London to, to present the case for continuing with this placing of the Scottish, of the nuclear force in Scotland for the next 50 years. Um, the Scottish Parliament, however, did have a debate about it, although it had no rights for involvement in this debate, and uh, voted by, I think it was 71 against 16, to, against the idea of the replacement of Trident. Uh, and I should say here that the support, the, and the opposition to Trident in Scotland is not confined to the Scottish National Party. A substantial block of the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats and Green Party is now represented there too, uh, were opposed to this replacement. Okay, um, the Scottish government's position now, by the way, when I say Scottish government, I mean here the, what was called initially after the Scotland Act, the Scottish Executive. But when the SNP gained its uh, position of, of, of its form of the minority government in 2007, it decided it was called itself the Scottish Government. Now, this is not a government of an independent state, but it is what they call themselves as the government of Scotland, given the powers that it has. So when I say Scottish government, I mean now the SNP-led Scottish government. The position they have coming to the referendum is Trident, Musco, and Cango. This is, if we gain sovereignty, this is the way in which we're going to exercise our sovereignty. At long last, we are going to be able to remove this system from Scotland. Okay. And in a sense, it's your turn, England, to have these, these blessed things. Um, they've also pledged uh, to join the MPT as a non-nuclear weapon state uh, with no nuclear weapons stationed on, on territory. And it will be subject to full-scope safeguards. So it will become a normal non-nuclear weapon state within the MPT. And on NATO, uh, there is quite a long tradition in the SNP of opposition to NATO membership, the party is visibly moving in the other, towards NATO membership and trying to get familiar, accustomed to that position. And there's been a lot of uh, toing and froing to Norway and Denmark studying actually the Norwegian and the Danish positions on NATO. And I think they'll adopt a certain kind of aversion of the Norwegian and, and Danish stances on NATO membership. But again, they say without nuclear weapons. Now, the, okay, Trident, so they say Trident must go and can go. The question is, can it go anywhere? And um, this is still a little bit controversial in Britain, but I think the general consensus, and it's what I and Malcolm and everyone I've ever spoken to in the Ministry of Defence says, 
there's nowhere, nowhere for it to go if you, if you stay with a, a submarine system. And the problem is not so much Faslane, where the submarines are berthed, but it's Coolport, where the missiles and warheads uh, are stored and loaded onto the submarine. And there are two possibilities often mentioned down in England, which is the southwest of England, which is uh, Plymouth, Devonport, and uh, Falmouth. Um, and you could imagine, actually, with quite a bit of expenditure, actually creating a similar kind of berthing system for the Trident um, um, uh, submarines down there. But there's nowhere you can find uh, that you can imagine getting planning consent and all the rest of it for the Coalport equivalent. You know, it's mainly National Trust land. It's an area of tourism. You can imagine the NIMBYism. Uh, it's just not possible to find that kind of place. And Coolport is an, actually quite an isolated site, which is very, very convenient and well-developed and has been operating for now for a very long time. Um, so the, also, bef at the time of the 2006 decisions, the Ministry of Defence considered other systems, the idea, for instance, of air-launched cruise missiles rather than the submarine system, uh, but rejected them as being inferior strategically and also it meant, would mean the Air Force becoming involved, which it didn't want to become, and so on and so forth. So that was kind of rejected. And I don't think, I get the sense the Ministry of Defence has no appetite to go back to uh, other systems now. So the point is that the SNP's policy to to, to shut down Faslane and Coolport is tantamount to a policy to actually to close down the British nuclear deterrent because there's nowhere else for it to go. So, I mean, these, these are very big, big uh, issues. Now, the question then is, is this policy credible? Could the SNP, even if it won this independence referendum and won it fairly decisively, is it credible that it could actually enforce this? And... Uh, that is certainly highly debatable because the priority of this newly independent Scotland will be to gain recognition in the United Nations, to gain recognition as a member state in the European Union, uh, to join NATO, to negotiate with London on oil and gas, to negotiate on the share of the national debt, to negotiate all sorts of things that are immediately vital to the formation of a new working operating state. And, and, of course, to win friends in foreign capitals, including Washington, including Paris, including German, Berlin, and many other places where they may take a rather different view of this. And also to win friends within NATO, if it's going to join NATO and so on. So, you know, it sounds to be a bit incredible that this uh, newly formed government of, of a small state, actually, 5 million people against 55 million people in England, could actually insist on closing down what was seen to be a rather vital asset. And it, it has, a, I mean, it is fairly obvious, too, that if the Scottish National Party were prepared to be flexible, this would be the most wonderful bargaining card. In return for being generous and accepting this damn thing for the next uh, few decades, you know, you give us this and we will, you know, we show flexibility to this, you better show flexibility on that. So, in fact, it's one of the tr a tremendous bargaining cards for the for independent Scotland. However, I mean, in terms of Scottish politics, it would be extremely difficult for it to shift in that direction, at least very decisively. And... Um, also, it would create difficulties for it in actually creating what it wants to do is a, a different kind of foreign and defense policy. And the, the idea is that Faslane would become the main naval base in Scotland, but it would not be the host, the house, home for, for these uh, nuclear assets.
Okay, next thing is, could, however, the rest of the UK, could London insist on maintaining the nuclear force in Scotland against Scottish wishes? And here, I think there are two things about this. One is, it would actually be unprecedented for the entire force of a nuclear weapon state to be operated out of a non-nuclear weapon state. There's no precedent for that. And I'm not quite sure what the international ramifications are. I suppose under the NPT that is plausible, legally possible. But still, it's a precedent that some might not like very much. And especially if it was operated against the, out of this place against the will of the host non-nuclear weapon state. You can imagine internationally the politics of this are very awkward indeed for the UK to be assertive about this and to insist over the desire of Scotland to become a non-nuclear weapon state without nuclear weapons based on its territory. Uh, the second thing, too, is that would the UK, rest of the UK actually be comfortable with this? And one thing is, is that the, the nuclear warheads, of course, down here, uh, manufactured this... Uh, I can't get this to work now. The, the, the manufactured down in, in the south of England trundle up the roads... To, um, to Fastlane, to Coolport, I mean. And when they get across the border into Scotland, they need, of course, to be carried on. I mean, Shepherd, shepherded and police forces and all the rest of it, special branch and the whole caboodle. And so actually it needs a great deal of cooperation between the Scottish government and the UK government to actually to operate Trident. There's all the basing rights issues too. And um, even today... The Scottish government, in principle, could close the whole thing down because it, it actually has the powers over policing, over emergency services, and so on. So in principle, it could close it down now. Now, would the UK government actually be really comfortable with having its entire nuclear force located in another place and all the time having to gain cooperation between, from the government in, of, of a, a newly independent state? That is the question. Okay, um, now I'm coming towards, towards my conclusion on this. But the, so the question really is, um, uh, we have the referendum in 2014, but then there's also a general election in 2015 in the UK. And the, where this gets uh, interesting um, is because there is also a debate going on and has been going on within the Ministry of Defence about whether, in fact, the UK anyway can afford this weapon system. And in this age of austerity, of economic difficulty in Britain, um, you hear voices from the army, the air force, uh, various places saying, this, is, this shouldn't be our priority. In any way, in the future, our technological resources should be invested in new kinds of things. Um, the new technologies of the future. I mean, this is, in a way, something that developed in the past, and this perhaps shouldn't be our future. So there is a great debate that's going to happen, I think, after the next general election as to whether, in fact, Britain can afford this deterrent anyway. And um, the, at the moment, you see, the, the, what happened in the 2007 decision was that, in fact, the spending on it would be in two phases. One's what's called the initial gate, the jargon for it, in which the, the main design preparation would take place. And that would run for about 10 years, eight, nine, 10 years. Then what they call main gate 
which is the main resources, would have to be devoted to the manufacturing. That's when the big expenditure happenings, happens. And, um, so, and, and by the way, the decision on Maingate, again, would have to come back to the Westminster Parliament for debate. So it was sort of left open as to whether, in fact, the whole thing would be manufactured in the end. And there's been, by the way, in the interim, a debate about whether we need four boats or three boats, whether we'd have to have one weapon system out on patrol at all times. So attempts to see if you can actually economize a bit on, on the system. Now, I think what the uncertainty really is how the Scottish issue will intersect with this other question of the economic pressures and also, of course, the strategic debates in NATO and elsewhere about what the utility of nuclear weapons are. And I think the point I would make here is, in fact, the, the policy on Trident is actually rather unstable and has become unstable, uh, both because of the Scottish issue, but probably even more so because of the economic plight of the, of the UK and the, all the debates about opportunity costs. Now, uh, by the way, the present government in London, if you go, and, as I think James intimated, and go and knock on the door of the Ministry of Defence and say, can I come and discuss the future of the deterrent given the Scottish referendum, they will say, I'm sorry, we can't talk about that. And I was in the Foreign Office just the other day and at a meeting when there was a, quite a senior MOD official. And after the meeting, I went up to him and said precisely this question, can I come and talk to you about this? And he said, well, actually, we have had some discussions about this, but we can't talk about this. And this is the position, I think it's actually a very awkward position, I have to say. And whether they can sustain this, I don't know. But I think the trouble is, if it becomes an open debate, you begin to realize the seriousness of the difficulties the UK government is in on this. And where it may come out into the open is, in fact, the Defence Select Committee in London is due to hold an inquiry into the whole implication for British security policy of the independence. Um, and by the way, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the legitimacy of the Select Committee is challenged by the SNP, because there are no SNP members of Parliament on this committee. And they've, in fact, they very generously invited Alex Salmond, the leader of the SNP, to come and speak before them, which I, I don't know whether he'll accept that or not. And on that issue, by the way, there is a, a kind of general consensus from Britain that Alex Salmond, who's the leader of the SNP, is one of the most gifted political leaders that has emerged in Britain over the last 50 years. And that includes Churchill and, and, and Thatcher. He's on that kind of caliber, an extremely able political operator and tactician and strategist, and with a, quite a, uh, a skilled team. Um, so I will stop there. I, I have actually, I, can I just plant there a few questions that to some extent I'd quite like to, to ask members of the audience here. The first is, does the US care about the British deterrent? Would it, would it really, would it really um, be troubled if the UK became a non-nuclear weapon state? Might it almost, to some extent, find it quite interesting to have a nuclear weapon state giving up nuclear weapons? Um, and also, what might this mean for US attitudes towards participation in the project to replace Trident? Commercial, Transition, transactions, all of those sorts of things. Second question, what are the implications for NATO? Third question is to do with the European deterrent. If the US is relocating to the Pacific more than and Europe is becoming less important to it, um, does this have implications at the European level? And by the way, one of the things that anchors the British deterrent politically is the, idea, is the, the possibility that France might become the only country with nuclear weapons in Europe. 
to large sections of particularly the English establishment that is anathema, the idea that the French should be the sole nuclear weapon state in Europe. But there's also the question, by the way, of Anglo-French cooperation in, in this. Uh, a, a fourth question is the rest of the UK becoming a successor state to the UK in the non-proliferation treaty, is that problematic? And is there actually a link between this and the UK maintaining its position in the UN Security Council? Might, might that have ripple effects in the debates about UN reform? And lastly, um, in the MPT context, if the UK does eventually disarm, what are the implications of that in the wider MPT debates about disarmament and everything else? What are the ripple effects of that? Okay. William, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you've checked your email yet this morning. We, uh, you were emailed, uh, and I was CC'd last night, actually, by a former U.S. Navy officer uh, who suggested an alternative, and the more I think about it, the less crazy I think this is, of not basing U.K. nuclear weapons in Scotland, or rather not basing rest of U.K. nuclear weapons in Scotland, but actually basing them in the U.S., um, is it completely unimaginable that just like the US bases B-61s in Europe, you could base UK nukes at uh, uh, the submarines at Kings Bay and have a separate UK uh, corporal equivalent there? Um, let, me, let me ask the first question. Um, I completely agree with you that the MOD has shown the Ministry of Defence very little interest in any system other than Trident. Uh, but the Liberal Democrats, who are the junior coalition partner, uh, got the Conservatives, the senior coalition partner, to agree to a cost-effectiveness review. Uh, and there's a whole, there's, uh, there is a debate, not so much in government but outside government, about whether there are uh, alternatives to the Trident system um, that are more cost-effective. So one of the options has been uh, nuclear-armed sea-launch cruise missiles based on attack submarines uh, rather than um, SSBNs. Um, and presumably the MODs might start to take alternative options more seriously in the event of a Scottish uh, yes. Can you see a credible alternative delivery system uh, that could reasonably be hosted in almost certainly England? Well, I, I mean, I, I have to say I'm not really, I don't feel I'm a, an expert in this respect, a technical expert. But what I hear is that the, the favoured alternative option, as you say, is using the so-called astute class submarines and having sea-launched, um, are, are they cruise missiles? Would they be cruise missiles? Problem there is they're also based at Faslane. In fact, one of the curious things the government did was, in fact, to, to locate all British submarine fleet at Faslane. So it doesn't solve the problem, that one, actually, unless you, again, you, you open a new base somewhere else for the astute submarines. But there are other things, too, about which I, I don't really know the answer to this, is if you go over to the cruise missile system, does it need a new warhead design? Does it need a new whole new kind of design system? What would the... What would the missiles be, and where would they? Would that need a renegotiation with the United States over technology, and so on? So I think my sense is, in fact, there is going to be this debate, and they will certainly look at these possibilities, but it's not going to be straightforward, and they're going to find there are new costs, there may be new complications, and they would still have basing problems as to where you where you actually locate the, the systems. Also, the anxiety about actually the 
if you're going to have a, a nuclear deterrent, it should be a true nuclear deterrent, and it should survive second strikes and all the rest of it. And uh, a feeling that's, that the UK might be actually committing still a lot of resources to perhaps an inferior system. So I don't know where it comes out. I'm sure you're entirely right that there will be a more intense uh, search. And this particular committee, which was really set up to appease the Liberal Democrats in the coalition, may actually acquire rather more importance than it had previously. Yeah. Um, George. Yeah, thanks, Mike. This was, uh, this was uh, fascinating. Um, I want to try to address your your questions, the questions that you asked, because as I was listening, and you know, we, we've had some interactions. In terms of the of the U.S., I think you would get cross currents. Um, the The working level, especially probably of civilians in the defense establishment and the industry, would do everything they could to keep the U.K. in the game. Uh, and 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 including as I as I was listening to you, I said, "Well, we we'll just base them in the U.S." Um, and so I think there would be a lot of interest in doing that. And then the question would be, who would be at that moment at the top level of the political system, and what would their thinking about nuclear weapons in general be? And and if that person was in favor of moving towards disarmament, they would meet fierce resistance from the kind of permanent establishment, but they might be able to pull it off. And I would, you know, Amy would have a better sense of the Congress and how people there would. So that was one thought. On France, my sense would be that the French would be quite panicked by the UK getting out of this. They don't want to be left alone and exposed. And so they, they like perhaps the US permanent establishment, would say, well, we'll find a place for you here. Uh, but but by all means, don't get out of this game. What can we do to keep you in it? So then I go to your question about the UN Security Council. And it seems to me that's where you actually would get the support, that you would, that there would be a greater tendency, especially as Brazil, Japan, and South Africa want to and are seeking permanent seats and have abandoned nuclear weapon programs, or in Japan's case, forsworn them, the argument would be, well, great, the UK has to keep it, because it's abandoned this now. It's getting into a better class and demonstrating you know, the way the future should be. So that would be the last thing I would worry about, is actually losing your seat. I think you'd be in a stronger position to keep the seat based on uh, disarming. Uh, on the basing in the US, um, I mean, there's a certain logic to it. But this old debate in Britain about is it an independent deterrent? And I, I, I frankly, uh, I find it politically implausible that uh, this nuclear weapon state wanting to have some independence from the United States, as well as, I mean, obviously close ties, could, could base its deterrent in the, to some extent it's a sign of weakness too, isn't it, to do that. I, I just find it implausible. And there are a whole lot of issues around that. And uh, I can't imagine support. On the French side, I agree with you entirely. The French would be completely panicked by it. Um, but again, I can't imagine the British consenting to the nuclear force being based in, in France, sort of run out of Brest and, and Norman, in, in Brittany and so on. I can't imagine it. Because it comes back to the idea of independence and being an independent great power and everything else. And again, it would be regarded, I think, as a bit of a humiliation even if the French might give you an all sorts of 
uh, goodies in reply for actually carrying on in the business. So um, I, 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 I think your analysis of the United States, I mean, you know far better than I do, it seems pretty acute, that there will be encouragement to stay in the business. I mean, I think one of the questions it begs is actually when the United States wakes up to all these issues, how much is it going to try and intervene in all the politics around this and try and send signals to the Scottish government that it doesn't like this at all? And you're, you better to moderate your position or else you're not going to find many friends in Washington. I guess they'll be very reluctant to intervene. On the other hand, they might send some not-so-subtle messages saying that we're not happy with this. On the other hand, it doesn't go easily with the US position on disarmament now to come out in the open and say anything like this. Um, I, I can see a, a number of hands in front of me. Let me just weigh in very briefly on two points, which is I just think one of the biggest problems with basing UK nukes anywhere outside the UK is not the submarines, it's the cool pool problem yes. again, it's the warheads. I mean, it's one thing basing B-61s in Germany, which is a country that doesn't have its own rules and regulations about nuclear safety. It's another thing basing them in the US. I mean, what happens if UK warheads don't meet US safety standards? And how do you convince local communities that they do? I mean, that seems to me very tricky domestic politics there. And then secondly, you know, Michael Quinlan, who was... Um, probably the greatest establishment British deterrence thinker ever, made the point that actually he thought it would be incredibly beneficial to break the link between Security Council membership and the possession of nuclear weapons. Uh, I think I'm going to take, there are so many hands I'm starting to see, I'm going to take three at a time. So firstly, yep, Brian, thanks. Hi, thank you for the talk. I'm Wolf Schwartz from RAND. Um, two questions which call upon um, your different hats of expertise. Um, one is, is this likely to be an issue in um, Scottish, in the referendum, this question of the nuclear? Does this have any resonance with the, with the public, either pro or con? And second, putting on your other hat, I'd be very interested in um, what you think the sort of international order nuclear implications would be of, of Britain not being a, a nuclear power. And just one comment, I think just whenever you'd have this discussion about what would the impact be of Britain stopping to be a nuclear power. I mean, there's already questions, United States maybe called alarm, about the cutbacks in British defense and what contribution they can continue to make to sort of overall global security. I think the blow of Scottish independence plus, you know, the discussion of denuclearization would really end Britain as a great power and, and, and increasingly be less, less relevant in the United States in all of the security discussions because it just, it, it already is a question of what they bring to the table and this is one of the things, it would, it would completely eliminate that. Thanks, Lord. Uh Yeah, at the front. Uh, if you just wait for the microphone, Maddie, thanks. Uh, Dr. Donner, uh, ba uh, basically, the only nation to use nuclear weapons has been the United States. We used them in 1945 in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. There hasn't been one instance where they're even usable. Mutually assured destruction, MAD, is history. And if you look at the conflicts, they've been asymmetrical. So basically, even our country should wake up to the fact that these are a huge expense and they're useless. Now, there's an opportunity then for the UK to show some genuine leadership in this whole discussion, which would save it a lot of money and everyone else a lot of grief. 
So wouldn't they maybe take that tact? Thank you. Uh, and Amy Wolf at the back. I'm Amy Wolf from the Congressional Research Service. I want to dig down on some of your questions and come back up out of the weeds. I, I want to touch on this issue of basing British boats here just from a perspective of some real how you would do it. We have two submarine bases, and if we reduce the size of our fleet, as there seems to be pressure to do, we may not be able to afford to keep two bases. And we're pivoting to the Pacific, and I've asked people this if they've thought about this a lot. If we do this, we may end up out in Bangor, and King's Bay's got nothing going on in Georgia. It would be imaginable <laughs> that King's Bay hosted the British boats. Um, your NIMBY problem wouldn't apply because the choice, choice at King's Bay was you take the British boats or you shut down, and for domestic reasons they wouldn't want it to shut down. So it is imaginable to find a scenario where it would work, but I also agree it's hugely implausible based on the politics. Um, as far as what the view is in the United, what the view would be in the United States if the UK were to leave the nuclear business, the Pentagon would, pardon my pun, go ballistic. <laughs> <laughs> It's a NATO issue, it's um, a special relationship issue, and it's extremely, at this point, a cost issue. We can't afford the new SSBN either, and you guys are sharing the cost of the common missile compartment, and if you back out, we're really in trouble. So the whole process of acquiring a next-generation submarine, if you back out of that business, we have even more trouble than we already have. So from a political, an economic, a business perspective, oh god, the Pentagon wouldn't like it. Congress probably doesn't even know you have nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> you think this is funny? I work with these people. But Amy is speaking and, in a purely personal capacity, and, actually. And, and, and even amongst those who do know, they don't put a lot of weight of value on the special relationship with the UK and the nuclear business, or at least they didn't 15 years ago, the last time I talked about it. But to get out of the weeds, isn't this really a NATO issue? You said that Scotland would like to join NATO. NATO needs the UK to have nuclear weapons. If Scotland wants to join NATO and live under the Article 5 commitment, NATO has something to say about whether or not Scotland gets to do this to the UK nuclear deterrent. Is that not true? And second, doesn't that give the UK, the US, but NATO in general, a lot of leverage over the ins and outs of Scottish independence? Yeah. Um, on, on the first question about the issue in the Scottish referendum, it will be an issue, but not a huge issue. I mean, the main issue is to do with economics and jobs and, and actually more just the cultural divergence and the sense of wanting sovereignty and control, even though sovereignty is a highly con difficult concept these days. And it's also the issue is going to be the, due to the unpopularity of the government in London. And one could imagine, actually, that that I mean, already you see signs of real difficulty from the Lang government on the whole range of issues. The the coalition is is having entering stormy weather. And by the way, I'd say that the the it, it depends mainly, I think, the outcome on what happens in the Labour Party, um, because it's the Labour Party's troubles in Scotland that have actually led very much to the rise of the SNP. And if the Labour Party actually increases its strength in the next two or three years, including in Scotland, then I think the referendum is, is more likely to go against. 
uh, a yes vote. Um, but of course, that's not what the Conservative Party wants. It doesn't want a strong Labour Party, so in a curious way. And I want to say, by the way, on that, there's another dynamic developing, which is, in fact, that quite a lot of people in England don't want Scotland to remain in the Union. We prefer it to be out. And there's this curious division within the Tory party in terms of their interests, because if the Scotland left the Union, uh, the Conservative Party would be in charge of the Westminster Parliament probably forever, because the Labour Party would be so truncated. Uh, I mean, I'm exaggerating, of course, but I mean, there's, there's a division of opinion. You know, the Conservative Party has always been the Unionist Party, the strongest Unionist Party, but on the other hand, its interests would be, to some extent, best served by Scotland leaving the Union. And also, the, there's also a wing of the Conservative Party that now sees an opportunity, by the way, in the European Union. It's even been suggested that, that, that the rest of the UK would not be necessarily seen as a successor state to the UK in the European Union. There's even an opportunity for leaving the European Union if Scotland leaves. So there are very complicated kind of political dynamics going on here. On the international order and Britain not being a nuclear power, I think that's uh, a question that's very hard to answer. I mean, I think it's very interesting that there has never been a case where a fully-fledged nuclear weapon state gave up nuclear weapons. So, I mean, in, in, within the NPT, because the international nuclear context, it would be a very interesting precedent to have one of the founding members of the nuclear club giving up. Um, if it gave up simply out of weakness then I don't think it would have much effect. But if it gave up out of decision that this was no longer really a desirable, as comes to this gentleman's talk to, not really a necessary asset any longer, we better uh, put our resources elsewhere. And um, also, you know, there's this idea that I've, I've partly been responsible for, this idea of Britain becoming a kind of disarmament laboratory. You know, we demonstrate actually how to do it. And I think the dynamics of that are quite interesting, even though I wouldn't expect tomorrow that it would have any effect on the Russians or the Chinese or the Indians or others um, on, on this question. On the, um, uh, the question of British boats in the US again, I, 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 I listen to what you say. On NATO, um, I, I think that's right. But again, it's, it's a difficult issue in NATO. I'm not sure that NATO can easily take a collective view on this. And also, if you have in NATO members like Norway and Denmark who have this policy, can Norway and Denmark and other countries in NATO actually say Scotland shouldn't have this position? So it's difficult. It's also difficult, I have to say, for the SNP, saying we want to join NATO, which essentially is a nuclear alliance, but we don't want anything to do with nuclear weapons. So I think there's a very difficult dynamic there again, but I think it's quite difficult for NATO to have a common position on this. And to some extent, this is something that would have been negotiated after the... After the um, the referendum is held. Thank you. Um, let me take two. We, sorry, we, we had a bit longer than I thought we did. Uh, Miles, yeah. Hi, Owen. Nice to see you again. Um, you mentioned the question about uh, NATO and, and the effect on, on there. And I, one, one thought I had, and part of it is, I, I'm sorry I was a little late, but the, there's the, the you were focusing mainly on the Scottish question. You mentioned sort of towards the end the budgetary questions. And I, I guess the question about whether we base um, boats elsewhere partly depends on that. If it's, a, if it's mainly a budget question in domestic politics in the UK, then it's not really, in the basing is only one part of that. It's also just the cost of the boats themselves. Um, and I, I'm wondering if the one possibility might be in the absence of going for a new, new set of uh, uh, Trident subs that you could 
move the B-61s out of all the other European bases to the UK, <laughs> which would solve, kind of solve two problems at once. You get rid of all the issues with the Germans and the Dutch and the Belgians, and the UK still has a nuclear deterrent. You turn it over to the UK. Um, yes, thank you. Just, just wait for the mic. Um, <clears throat> Philip Ridgway, um, I, I think one of the problems and with basing alternatives or turning over something to the UK is the, the independent deterrent. So we currently sell our missiles and our missile systems to the UK, but they maintain the warheads so that they can maintain an independent deterrent. And if you start to base the independent deterrent in other countries, then the question may arise, uh, does that country become the puppet master and it's no longer an independent deterrent? Uh, on that issue, by the way, the Trident Replacement is a very interesting paper written about the software in the re-entry vehicle. And uh, the question is, did the Ministry of Defense actually know whether the US had, uh, because it basically provided most of the software, whether the US um, had the ability to actually to, uh, to what, what do you call it, uh, not, not to, um, to close down, to, to prevent the, the operation of this if, if it really wanted to. And I think that you're exactly right. I think the, the, the question of the independent deterrent is, is... And in terms, if you think also in terms of symbolism, this thing is very symbolic uh, for the UK, that the symbolism of actually having the deterrent somewhere else. Um, and, and there's lots of command and control stuff too. I mean, the rugby there we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. in terms of communications with the submarines and things, that's where the main communication center is in rugby. You know, how would, how would this work? I, I, I just can't imagine it, it really functioning. The, the B, whatever, again, implausible. Completely politically implausible, I'm afraid, I think. So, I mean, I, I, I come back to, I mean, I may be in touch. Why it's impossible we're, we're providing weapons now, why not in domestic politics, I just can't imagine it. I mean, to be fair to Mark, yeah. there were B-61s based in the right. UK. I mean, and, 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 and if I remember rightly, I'm not sure the Pentagon has officially said that the B-61s have been removed from the UK, though it's clear yeah. they have from the budgeting process. But as an alternative to this, I mean, it's, I, I just can't, it just doesn't enter into my, my kind of plausibility, you know. I'd make, I'd make a couple of points about what independence of the UK deterrent means. Uh, and, and again, it goes back to an argument that Michael Quinlan advanced, which he said there's two different ways to think about independence. There's independence to launch in a crisis if the UK is abandoned by the US, or as the UK always said during the Cold War, should the Soviet Union miscalculate that in a crisis the UK might be abandoned by the US, then the UK needs the ability to, the demonstrable ability to, to, to launch independently. Secondly, there's kind of long-term independence in the sense of alienation from the US, which the UK doesn't enjoy at the moment. Uh, you know, if the US was decided to stop selling the missiles, stop uh, updating uh, doing the maintenance for the guidance systems. The UK couldn't retain the Trident system at the moment. So the UK doesn't currently enjoy the longer-term independence, though it would claim it enjoys the shorter-term crisis-based independence. So I think you have to evaluate alternative basing options against what the UK has at the moment. Um, the other thing that occurs to me about Scotland becoming an MPT state is the IEA would have to go into Scotland and verify Scotland's so-called initial declarations of its nuclear materials and holdings, yeah. 
which would involve inspections at Dune Ray, where the naval reactors are tested, and Chapel Cross in the south of Scotland, where the plutonium and also the tritium was produced, uh, which I imagine is something the UK government would potentially be pretty unhappy about, uh, which is another aspect of this problem I'd never thought of before. Uh, but we, we still have plenty of time for, for questions. Can I just say, by the way, we have, a chapter, we have a chapter in, oh. in my book on safeguards, <laughs> which is quite intriguing, actually. Um, at the back, yeah, and then Carl. Thank you. Clara O'Donnell, visiting fellow at Brookings. Um, I had a question just on, on further details of the uh, the way the SNP is portraying its current message and these ideas of... Sorry, the way the... Sorry, the way the SNP is currently presenting all these various ideas regarding uh, no longer hosting Trident. I mean, is it couching these pledges uh, with an awareness of the tensions, potential tensions in its own position and the kind of consciously, or putting forward the fact that they are consciously will create tensions with certain allies or, or regarding the similar thinking going on or the parallel thinking going on about potentially joining NATO? And also, are there any ideas coming out of the SNP of potential compromises um, of, of how they can make this work? Just can, I, can, I ask, can I ask that straight away? Okay, go on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> I think the SNP is very aware of this. The difficulties, and I just say that it's it's actually a very pragmatic party, and um, it talks about partnership. It doesn't want to be confrontational, in a sense, and it knows it knows full well that if it is to gain independence, it has to demonstrate it's going to be a good citizen, and able to cooperate with London and other capitals. It is aware of that, and it it is hinted at some flexibility. I mean, it's talking about now the language is. I think the um, Angus Robertson, who is a, I have to say, very able defence and foreign affairs spokesperson, talked about as quickly as possible that they should get it out. But then, what is as quickly as possible? So you see signs of sort of searching for some kind of compromise. The problem is, is domestically within Scotland, they can't compromise on this issue because it's such a kind of seen as a red line issue. They can't actually consent in advance of the referendum. To, um, to, to any idea of moving on. If they did win the referendum, and then the, the bigger issues of, or the economic issues, oil and gas and everything else come up, I think you could imagine, in fact, they could shift quite a long way on it and be pretty flexible, because I think that the Scottish people would then probably be not so fussed about this. It, wasn't, it wouldn't be quite so symbolic once they actually had independence. But it would still be difficult, I have to say. And I, I, I would stress, too, that the Scottish government imagines a different kind of foreign policy. And, of course, this comes against the background of what's seen as a failure in UK foreign policy, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and so on, that foreign wars, all of this leading to misery and instability and everything else. And so they can perhaps portray themselves as leading the way towards a different kind of foreign policy, which we're not so running around the world pretending to be a great power still. A more bondist position, a Nordic position, and so on and so forth. And that's what they're trying to carve out at the moment. Thank you. Uh, two more questions. Carl, yeah, at the back. Yes, uh, Carl Lundgren from Jonas Speaks. Um, I guess I'll partly follow up on something Amy said about if for some reason the the English uh, gave up their subs for nukes. Uh, the U.S. might have to do the same or would be strongly uh, required to do so for budgetary reasons. And I was wondering, I guess I ask a general question, assuming for the sake of argument that Great Britain 
retains its nukes, and the U.S. does too. There are other ways of delivering nuclear weapons. And so do we, in fact, need nukes on subs? Is that superior to other methods or cheaper? Or, or how do you see that issue? Is there any possibility England could do this some other way than other than have nukes on subs? Thank you. And at the front here. Just, thanks, Matty. Yes, hi. Uh, <clears throat> I'm John Bellicide with the St. Andrews Society of Washington, D.C. We're a Scottish-American heritage group. We've been following this and discussing it with our friends in Scotland quite a bit. You mentioned uh, um, uh, Alex Salmon being a very astute politician. Clearly he is. Uh, he wants a second question on the referendum, as I'm sure you know, uh, which basically says, if you don't want independence, um, do you want maximum devolution, which would mean a lot more of transference of power to the Scottish uh, Scottish people from, from London. Um, First Minister uh, Henry MacLeish and others in Scotland who are unionists are saying, well, that would basically mean a, uh, a federal state for Britain. And should that pass, uh, maybe English devolution, et cetera, et cetera. If, if that's what we ended up with, uh, which would basically be a vote for a federal Britain, what impact would that have on, uh, on this whole issue? Uh, so Scotland would stay in the Union, but would have a lot more control. Clearly, England and Wales would have more control, Northern Ireland. That would be a different kind of Britain. And what would be the impact of that on the question at hand? Um, answering that would take quite a long time, but it's a very, very interesting. I mean, there is, I mentioned the, 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 the debate about the question in the referendum. You're absolutely right. It's not just a, a debate now about uh, a yes vote or a no vote. There's this third option, or actually a second option, because you'd have one question, which would be, do you want independence? Uh, and if you don't vote for that, it essentially means no. Uh, the other question, though, that has been floated is to have a, an intermediate position of more devolved powers to Scotland, particularly in terms of tax-raising powers, but other powers too. So it remains within the Union, probably becomes a kind of confederacy of uh, defence and foreign policy in particular remaining in London, but lots more powers going, going out to um, Scott. Now, the, the politics of this are, are very interesting because basically what Alex Salmond has said, by the way, he's slightly worried about losing this referendum. So in some ways, the vote for more devolution would still be regarded as a success um, in the SNP, having attained that. What he said is, okay, I'm prepared to have this additional question. But you are the people who have to phrase it and to say exactly what maximum devolution will mean. So the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, Liberal Democrats and others, they have to actually define that. What I'm defining as, uh, as the leader of the SNP is what independent Scotland will be like. It's up to you to do the rest. Trouble is they can't work together on it. The other parties can't. The Labour Party and the Conservative Party are at loggerheads. They simply can't work together on this issue which is one reason why it's very, very difficult. The next thing that happened is someone says, OK, I'm very happy to have this additional question. But down in London, um, uh, Mr. Cameron, uh, the Conservative Party, is saying, we want one question. And then uh, someone comes back and says, well, that's undemocratic. You know, if the Scottish people want another question, they can have another question. What are you doing closing down the democratic process in Scotland? So in a very astute way, he's made this a very, very difficult issue for both the, the opposition parties. I think, by the way, what will come out of this, my expectation, although I have no idea, really, is that there will be a vote against independence, but it will destabilize the devolution settlement. And it would be very, very unclear exactly what devolution means, which means the independence issue will come back again and again. It won't be settled. 
Um, in terms, by the way, of in terms on this issue, if you do have um, tax raising powers, and that means almost all taxes in Scotland being raised in Scotland and used for Scottish expenditure, in a curious way, you get a reversal of the flow of, of, of money. At the moment, money, the tax raising is all across the UK and funds go to Scotland to pay for all sorts of health and everything else. In the future, what you'd find is a reversal. You'd have money actually in Scotland coming down to London to pay for defence of foreign policy. And I can bet you that if, if Trident Replacement then comes up, should, should the Scots be funding Trident Replacement and other issues to do with foreign wars and so on? I think, I think it, again, it becomes difficult to see exactly what happens. Again, another kind of controversy. So I, th I think whatever happens, in fact, um, there's a certain destabilization of the relationship between Scotland and, and London. And by the way, may I just say, it seems to me on the federal issue, you know, it's very hard to imagine a federal Britain. One of the reasons is the domination of London and the southeast of England. And in fact, I would say the fundamental problem in the Union is the domination of London. If you imagine Washington and New York being in the same place, you know, the center of world capital being the same place as the center of government, and also the deindustrialization, which has hit Manchester, Liverpool, Newcastle, Glasgow, and so on. So to some extent, the political balance in the UK has been very much upset, and London has exploded in terms of its wealth and everything else. And the rest of the UK, I mean, as James says, you know, uh, you know if you're down, I think, well, you said to me last night, I think, if you're down in London, you don't really realize the rest of the UK exists almost. And, I don't think um, I did say that, William. <laughs> <laughs> you said something like that. <laughs> but it is true, and I've lived in the southeast of England for 20 years. I know what it's like. You forget about the rest of the UK. And by the way, I, my view is that if Scotland does gain independence, the real crisis is not for Scotland. It's the real crisis is for England, actually, in terms of... And, and the whole idea of the decay of the idea of Britishness. You think of the immigrant community as suddenly having to become English. Very difficult, you know. There are all sorts of things that come up, and it's very, com very, um, and, and, and the UK on this issue, by the way, of being remaining a great power. I, I don't, frankly, think um, the Trident actually affects that very much. I, I think fundamentally, its position is is much wider than that, and I think the financial centre in London actually is much more important than that. And um, I, I, I just don't. Feel, I think there will be an adjustment to becoming a non-nuclear weapon state, um, frankly. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, any more questions? Oh, sorry, there was, there, there was also Carl's question about uh, other... Uh, but I, I, other I thought, I thought we sort of we, we, attended to that a little bit. I mean, I, I say there is a search for other systems, but um, it keeps coming back to, well any other system is inferior and probably would have other kinds of complications. And so it's going to be very difficult. You know. But I, I, think, I think, by the way, there has been this long debate about the Anglo-French relationship and whether you could have a, a combined European force based upon the British and the French. And I, I'm sure that will come up again and that will be explored. And the French would, of course, love it. I mean, if it means closing down the British one, some... Anglo-French cooperation, and in fact, there has been more cooperation, as you know, in terms of uh, test facilities and things, and th th that's happening. Um, but in a way, it's too late for that. It needs it needs a longer gestation, that, and uh, uh, it needs 10, 20, 30 years to plan that and to 
begin integrating the manufacturing and everything else. And this is all too sudden for that to take place, it seems to me. And the other, the other area that changes in the UK system would affect is UK-US warhead cooperation. Um, one of the... Um, somebody from the labs here once said to me, look, the reason we really like the UK having nuclear weapons and us cooperating with them is because we'd much prefer, we at Los Alamos would much prefer to talk to Aldermaston than we would to Livermore. Um, and I think, I'm glad somebody got it, but I, 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 I if, 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 and this idea that the UK has always cooperated very closely with the US on the technology surrounding the warhead, although the warheads themselves are manufactured in the UK, uh, has, 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 I think, helped sustain the British program over a long time. If the UK was to move to a different system and you had a different warhead, uh, you know, would the US be interested in supporting that alternative choice of warhead? Uh, and if it wasn't interested in supporting that alternative choice of warhead, could the UK do the warheads by itself anymore? Um, so I think, I think there's that whole warhead question yes. to it. Yeah. Um, there was one more. Yeah. Milton, would you just get the mic? As you say, this is a very special agreement, the relation between the U.S. and the U.K. on uh, designing warheads. Uh, but if they were to station the weapons in France, would that very much complicate that kind of relationship? Because that relationship doesn't exist with France as it exists with the U.K. Well, that might be changing slightly. Well, I mean, by the way... Uh, Back in the Heath government, which was the early 1970s when Prime Minister Heath was in charge, there was actually a meeting. I mean, Bertrand Goldschmidt tells me this story from the French side, a meeting between the, the British and the French as to how they might operate uh, submarines together and whether they could, could kind of join the submarine fleets. And uh, he told me a story about they met and every time the French raised anything, uh, the, the British said, well, we'd have to consult with the uh, American government, or we can't talk about that or whatever, because there's so many <laughs> issues constraining them. And he told me that in the end, all they could talk about was what the submariners would have for breakfast. <laughs> and he said they came to be known as the cornflake talks, because of course the, the breakfast would have to be American too. <laughs> so, so anyway, I mean, I, I think you're right, though. There are lots of complicated issues to do with uh, proprietary knowledge and so on. Although I think the linkage between the French and the American uh, programs and the, the exchanges between them has probably been much more extensive than even we know. Um, over many years now, going back to the 1970s, probably. Um, but I, I, uh, I mean, can, can I just say on, on all this, I, I think there's fundamental uncertainty as to what is going to happen. But um, And uh, um, just to, to say again that I, I, I think this thing is, in a way, this issue is, is very difficult and complicated and will be shied away by the British government and by the SNP. In a way, the SNP doesn't want to rock too many boats on this. It has its own position, but it won't, it won't be the huge issue in the election. Um, and I think it, but the, the great debate really is going to happen in 2015 and thereafter. Um, but in the meantime, though, in a way, it leads to a certain paralysis in terms of decision-making, because everything's going to have to wait till then uh, to see what the, the, the landscape is. Um, and I, 
I don't know what, what you know what what happens in terms of debates in the United States. I guess there'll be quiet debates within the Pentagon, <laughs> within Congress, and so on. Or perhaps all this is too far away and too, in the end, not important enough. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Is there? Um, I'm just I'm just seeing if there's any more, or whether we will just end it with this one last question. Hi, uh, Alex Benedetto with Energy Intelligence Group. This is obviously, given my background, more an energy-related question. But um, I know that UK nuclear forces is obviously going to be a fairly big issue with this. But obviously, with my background, a huge issue is the North Sea. And given the elections coming up um, in the next few years and the question of what's going on with Scotland, do you see that as kind of potentially a more key issue? the fight over uh, you know, who has control over the North Sea oil and gas fields, and if Scotland would uh, be up to the task of, I guess, encouraging companies that it could take hold of contracts. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is an extremely important issue. And in, in the whole rise of the S&P, there's always been this... Um, I mean, mo most of the North Sea assets, oil particularly, are um, north of the border, out in the North Sea and around the, around the top. And there's this image Scotland has of, A, its oil's been stolen, uh, B, it's been wasted, the revenue's been wasted by the UK government. Um, and C, you have over across the sea, you have Norway, which has put it to very, very good use in creating all these huge pension funds and so on, which Norwegians are going to live a lovely life forever after. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the vision of the Scottish um, economy in the future is, in fact, that we can have a very, uh, quite a nice existence and we can also focus our income from this on the, the real deprivation there is in Scottish cities. I mean... Ed, parts of Edinburgh and Glasgow, I can tell you, are very poor and have enormous social problems. And the Scottish government has never really had the resources to devote its energies to, to rebuilding the economies of these cities and to getting over these problems of deprivation and housing and everything else. And so the idea really is, is, is you know, you can take these assets and begin to use them in this way. Of course, that leads to a huge difficulty for for the rest of the UK, and of course, it creates a balance of payments problems for the for the for the rest of the UK. And the, this is a very very big issue. And the, the the question too arises to okay, most of the funds used in the development of the North Sea have actually been UK funds, and not the Scottish funds. And so, in a sense, do the Scots owe uh, the rest of the UK money for actually having invested in it? So, I mean, it's very very big issues here, and contractual issues and everything else. And I, th I, th I agree with you that, in fact, this is, in a way, more central to the future than, uh, than Trident is. Although it doesn't quite have the same kind of symbolism, in a way, in terms of sovereignty. But these kinds of issues of pensions and the national debt, and by the way, the Royal Bank of Scotland, stuff like that, is, is really, uh, all that is, in a way, probably going to have more influence on, on the political outcome of this. Well, thank you very much. I said at the beginning of this uh, talk that other countries have domestic politics too. Uh, and I hope, if nothing else, I'm, uh, William managed to convince you of that today. Uh, but please join me in thanking William for his...